Listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, have I got a deal for you. If you follow the social media of the show, you know that I'm a pretty hairy dude, which is why I was really excited when Manscaped reached out and offered to send us some free goodies to see if we wanted to promote it to you all. I've got to say, right now, this is probably one of the best products I have ever bought for myself. Not only is it waterproof, but it also makes sure that you don't get any nicks or things in areas that you probably don't want guts, to be frank. That's why I'm so happy to say that support for the Mad Scientist podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate in men's hygiene bundles. Join over 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with its exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MADSCIENCE. That's M-A-D-S-C-I-E-N-C-E at manscaped.com. If my math is correct, that's about 12 million balls. What a great time. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MADSCIENCE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code MADSCIENCE. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. The famine is a punishment from God for an idle, ungrateful, and rebellious country, an indolent and unself-reliant people. The Irish are suffering from an affliction of God's providence. Charles Trevelyan, again, the guy in charge of famine relief. What the seems, fuck? Seems nice. He seems nice. I just it's, don't. It's the empathy that you look for with your leadership, really. That they, they understand people and sympathize I, with their needs. I don't understand. I don't understand. What an asshole. All right, Jake, roll the tape. So, dear listeners, at the end of the last episode, the Corn Laws had finally been repealed. And the relief commissions created by the Peel government Central Relief Commission had begun to administer some local help to communities greatly affected by the potato blight. The way these relief commissions worked is of importance here, and it's a little bit like nitty gritty. It seems. Again, like we said in the last episode, it seems kind of like who gives a shit about all this like bureaucracy setup that you created, but like the English care, they care a lot, right? This is the five mile queue, but, you know, made just to the insanest degree. Yeah, yeah it's it's now down to like three miles, too. Thank God. I'm just checking. So part of what made the relief efforts so completely ineffectual were what were known as the Irish poor laws. Right. These are these are the laws that really made things a huge sticking point and part like these laws were on the books for a long time and they're modeled after British poor laws, mm-hmm. but basically it's a, it's a method of government relief, like a setup system where the government decides, okay, this is how relief can be given to the poor. And so essentially what they did, they 
broke up the country into what were called poor law unions, which were areas of local governments which were responsible for providing relief to their own poor through the collection of taxes and like charitable stuff and, and whatever. So these individual poor law unions were responsible for um, for basically creating like almshouses, workhouses is what they were called, where the poor could come and basically like work and live in these poor houses for enough money or for food and clothing and, and whatever. Does that make mm. sense? It does. And already out of the gate. Sense yeah. issues. Yeah, you can already see some issues, right? Really so, quickly, can I, a question. So who was donating? Like you said that they were, you know, that these individual unions were accepting donations. Like it's who would be donating? So it's interesting. Do you think that that was a real thing? Yeah, no, it was. That that was like most most of how they got their money actually was through donations. So the queen um, would on a couple of occasions put out like the royalty, basically the crown would put out these calls oh. for donations, right? To say like, come on, you know, you need to help your countrymen donate. Yeah. yeah so vol- volunteering. I mean, yeah, it was volunteerism essentially. Uh-huh. Okay. But, okay. um, but that only really worked in the beginning when people weren't super against the Irish. It only worked oh, in the beginning say. when, when the, when, you know, so these are like rich aristocrats in the UK throughout the UK. Right. That are donating and helping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually quite a bit, um, quite a bit towards the end also comes from um, like America, too, when hmm. people are in America and they're sending money back. Hmm. So the law. Oh, that, OK, that makes sense. The law originally is passed in 1838. And again, it existed throughout the UK, these what were called poor laws. The main issue in Ireland was the depth of the dependence on a crop that had completely failed. Right, They were on a single crop. And the sheer, like, just by percentage, the amount of indentured cottiers and poor farmers to landowning rich aristocrats. So there weren't, there wasn't like a middle class of people who could help sort of almost like bear some of the burden either way. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, if you don't have a middle class, if you have very, very poor and very, very rich, you have no mobility. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you, it's also showing the stagnation of your economy. Yeah, absolutely. So the Peel government believed correctly, frankly, that the poor law houses, these workhouses, would not possibly be able to handle the influx of the starving and poor caused by the famine. The famine. And so mm-hmm. the Peel government created a central relief commission, which would also help with the poor house work and provide like emergency relief that didn't have to go through this poor law union system. And Which so basically everything at that point. Exactly. So they created like the food depots where grain was sold at cost to the public. They were the ones that created the public works programs. Um, they were the ones that were like importing corn from other countries, everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that, that relief commission is what, Trevelyan is in charge of, by the way, the guy that said the Irish deserve this because God was punishing them. And so um, the central Mm -hmm. issue, though, is that, again, Mm -hmm. the funding for this relief came from monies collected mostly through charitable donations of the aristocracy or basically like selling of government loans almost. Right. So they so the, the the poor law union in an area would say, hey, we're really struggling. We need a lot of help. And the government would say, "Okay, well, we'll give you an interest free free loan for 10 years. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like further issues here, right? So the stuff that they were bringing in, the, the food to help the poor, they were bringing in corn, which no one knew how to eat. So there was also like an added thing where Peel like tried to basically create a public information campaign to teach the Irish how to eat corn and millet and everything. So like it just it's adding complexity upon complexity upon complexity complexity. Yeah. 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 And so, again, it's. Yeah, it's just crazy. So things are falling apart for Peel. Yeah, things are falling apart for Peel. Well, yeah. And so but interestingly, his efforts are considered to be like the Peel government's efforts are considered to be probably the most successful of the government responses to the famine. They they weren't perfect, of course. I mean, loads of people starved and died. And it just again, like we're talking about relief here. Mm-hmm. The relief is not enough. This is like you're just you're going from starving quickly to starving slowly over a matter of months. Well, yeah. And you have like we've hit on on, on the prior episodes, you have this perfect storm where you've gutted their entire infrastructure. Absolutely. Right? There is no infrastructure. There is nothing that would have any kind of a cushion effect with any of this or that they could even leverage or count on to be able to build off of with any of this relief effort. It's like the hole they're in is so deep now that they it would take much more of an effort mm-hmm. started much earlier than than they recognized it. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I, I guess it's cold comfort, right? That Peel did something. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> the Peel's efforts are looked at today is like, yeah, there's a raging forest fire and you throw a single uh, bucket of water on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's they're more generous than what Trevelyan and the the Russell government would do, which is like adding kindling. But mm-hmm. it's still not not up to the task. So we ended last episode with so the Peel government actually ended up being able to repeal the corn laws, which, again, were those laws that set basically they were like protectionist policies in place to protect the interests of British and well, UK, I should say, growers of wheat and, and grains. Mm-hmm. So repeal the corn law and then the infighting that happened in the Tory government uh, that was Peel's party led to his ouster and the replacement of Peel was the Lord John Russell, a Whig and laissez-faire capitalist fucking psychopath. Oh, thank God. I really feel like a return to <laughs> a return to know, normalcy, <laughs> a return to normalcy with the uh, with laissez-faire is always, always what the culture needs. So interestingly, like Russell is considered maybe the least there's a couple of people like Charles Wood, Russell. They're looked at a little bit less. They're they're evil, but they're looked at as almost like not as evil as like Trevelyan is thought of almost as like Scar, right? And then like Wood and at least as far as I can tell, right, like George Gray mm-hmm. and Russell, they're mm-hmm. almost kind of looked at as like the hyenas from from The Lion King. All you know? right. Like one nice, of them's kind nice of funny. Analogy. Every once in a while, he's like, "Wait, should we do this?" And then Trevelyan's like, "No, idiot!" and like bonks him over the head. You know what I mean? It'd be hilarious <laughs> if there wasn't millions of people dying and starving. So yes, um, nice Disneyfication of it, though. Yeah, the Russell government taking over put the emphasis on three central figures. So the head of the treasury, who's Charles Trevelyan, who's already been in place under Peel, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Wood, and then the Home Secretary for Ireland, George Gray. These three adhered to what was known as the moralist viewpoint of capitalism, 
So they thought that the poor were poor because they were bad people. So the poor are poor and not able to function in a capitalist society, not because as Adam Smith himself said, there's just always going to be poverty, right? And it has nothing to do with their morals. It's just a systemic problem that, you know, happens with any kind of market economy. They thought, no, these people are not able to function in a capitalist society because they're, they're morally repugnant. They're bad people. And we need to, we need to kill them. We need to get rid of them, right? We need to yeah. beat, beat the good we into them, to, starve the yeah. good into them. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So the famine, like this is where we get the craziest quotes about the famine from the, from the government. You know, they say the famine is basically a good thing, right? It's a pestilence brought by God who is angry at the Irish to show them the error of their ways. Yeah, the error of their ways, which has been, you know, having to support the entire the British, British and their government <laughs> right, the for British decades government. upon decades upon decades without any kind of without any kind of voice or identity yeah. or profit or anything. Yeah, that's that's the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. Well, you know, that is the problem, right? It's just uh, I think they're pointing the wrong finger, though. So the wrong person. Peel. So. When Peel was in charge, Trevelyan's worst impulses were at least stymied, right. you know, but like Trevelyan, he's one of those chief people who is like, we shouldn't buy corn to import. We shouldn't do any of this stuff to help them like this. This this should be their own problem to figure out. So the Russell government takes over in 1846. Mm-hmm. And by that time that they take over they still weren't sure if like did the blight go away? Was it coming back? Right. Cause they, they didn't know enough about biology really to tell either way. Yeah. But they knew enough about the biology to say, Hey, all the potatoes are rotten. This is, this is going to be bad. It so, seems like God still hates them. So 1845 be biology. If you remember Sorry. in the last episode, the 1845 crop, the first crop of the famine it was like a 50% loss of the potato, right? Mm-hmm. 1846, almost the entire potato crop fails. There's like not a single good potato oh, left by yeah. midwinter. Yeah. Now, the Whig government coming in, coming in here, the Russell government, they came into power and thought, okay, first thing we do, we got a country that's starving. Marie, what do you think the first thing you do is? Oh, you cut your losses. Cut your losses. If you're, and run. Wig, if you're a conservative Whig, capitalist driven, cut your losses. Cut them out. Cut your losses. They're, they're the cancer. They're the reason that you know we can't keep supporting them. Gotta get, we yeah. can't. We and not only that, but if we support them and we fail, then we're the ones that will ultimately be blamed. So the Whigs try to. Their basic plan is to try to remove any financial risk or burden on the government, and instead shift all costs for poor relief onto the Irish aristocracy itself. Their basic argument is Irish property must pay for Irish poverty. Ooh, well, that's sort of uh, hypocritical. A little bit, right? Because Irish Irish property is paying for British profligacy, right? (laughs) Yeah, and the the British, the, the Irish landlords and landowners themselves are British. Yeah, it's not they're not they're not like another country, 
right? They're no. part of the UK. Oh, that's unfortunate. If only they were another country, it would have made things so much more <laughs> so neat. Much, so much easier to pretend like there weren't <laughs> so suffering people. So much easier to be that, to be able to carry that hypocrisy. So uh, what they basically did was they said, OK, the poor laws, we're going to use the we're going to use the poor laws and the relief commission set up already right through the poor laws. Uh-huh. Those are going to be the ones that are doing all of the relief at all. And the first thing they did was they said, OK, we are giving you a 10 year period to pay back any relief money that you request from here on out. Now, what did this do? You got to remember the people who are giving the money to the poor law unions are the aristocracy. They are not making any money. Because none of their crops are growing. Right. Right. All their workers are dying of starvation. So the landlords now, not that the landlords are like a sympathetic people here. They're a big villain in this, too. Oh, yeah. But they're like, well, shit, if now the poor law unions have to pay back the government, we need to start collecting money mm-hmm. from the people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, because all the only money they're getting now is in rent. So they start fighting to get back rent. From the people who are starving to death in these little mud huts. Who, you know, again, like, what money do they have? Exactly. There is no money. Right? I don't. Yeah. I like. Yeah. It's just I think the thing that's so amazing about this is, is uh, just you say it so plainly and you're just like, well, that makes absolutely no sense. These people didn't have any money. Like you point out these problems and it makes sense. I'm just sort of curious as to how it was sold you know, year after year in the time, like with the communication that would make these property owners, you know, be like, yeah, we can get it from them. We'll get it from them. It's not fair that well, they're asking us. We'll get it from them and be like, where, where do you see this? Where's like, where is that? How does so that make sense? We're going to get into this a little bit more. The view from London at the time was that the Irish were holding out. Yes, yes, because that's yes. Yeah, yeah. they thought they were, that just, the, they were hiding all of the gold. They th- under well, the yeah. bad potatoes. They thought that the Irish aristocracy was was holding out, and they thought that the Irish poor who were starving were not that badly off. Right oh, there, like again, we we see this not to get too political, right? Because God fucking forbid we. Heaven like, forbid we learn right? from this. Yeah, yeah, God forbid we use history to learn for the future. I'm not yeah. mad, Marie. You're mad. Um, no. The yes. they believed that the main problem they thought that the reason there wasn't enough money or food to help the the starving was that there were two classes of 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 poor people, the people who were really needing it, and the people who were just taking advantage of too lax government relief. Yeah. Because that so, government relief, that's been really they've yeah. been living high on the hog, right? So the Whigs, the Whigs mean the Whigs mean um governmental policy was to try and make sure that not a they never they they would rather a million people starve than pay out a single extra payment to somebody who was undeserving of that help. Man. That like that is the that is the, the sentiment here. So all of this mm. government relief mm. now, again, mm. they've mm-hmm. decided we're not doing this emergency relief commission shit anymore. Peel mm-hmm. was too soft with the Irish. We're going back to the old ways. And mm-hmm. so they went back mm-hmm. to two main areas of public relief. The public's work programs, 
and the poor law union workhouses. Mm. So let's get into these poor laws a little bit. So the Poor Law Relief Act of 1838 required that all relief in Ireland, so specifically for Ireland, be given as what was termed indoor relief in the union workhouses. So each center of population for an area had a workhouse and indoor relief could be provided there where local governors would ensure basically that the operation of the workhouse and collection of funds to provide for the poor from the better off in the area, charitable donations, whatever. Mm-hmm. Indoor relief meant taking in those who were so destitute they had, they had nowhere to live, giving them housing, food, clothing, and other care if they're sick or whatever, mm-hmm. and taking away their property. So if you went to the poorhouse and you said, hey, I need help, they asked you how much land you have. And if you had mm-hmm. more than basically like a half an acre, they said, well, you either have to give that land back to the landlord so he can maybe make some money right from it so that he can right. pay for this relief. Right. Or if you own the land outright, you're going to give it to the government. Oh right. So obviously now these workhouses, they become breeding grounds for like every disease imaginable. Right. So the, yeah. the biggest the biggest ones at the time are they call it um, they call it a famine fever. Not oh. as fun as it sounds. No. Um, dysentery, smallpox, measles, tuberculosis, like right. Like everything terrible. All can the greatest happen. hits. Yeah. Yeah. So initially, again, the first couple of first couple of months, the workhouses look like they're going to be mildly successful. Right. They're bringing in people. They're helping them, keeping them from starving, keeping them from freezing to death in the winter. But 1846 comes around. There's no food anywhere anymore. There's one workhouse for like every major city and 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 like county, right? They're like they're fucked. They're, there's nothing. They're they're not gonna be able to help these people. No, but the one it's not good. I'm air quoting. But the one thing it did achieve was it's also reconsolidating the wealth and the land. Yes. And the ownership yes. of the land back to the UK. So, right. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's weakening. It's weak. It's further weakening whatever roots Irish had for um, for permanency. Yeah. And so, for building wealth over time. So, right. And, and it actually gets to be that actually gets to be back to that question you had before. Right. Like, mm-hmm. what are the English thinking about these landlords? Like, how do they think they'll have any money to pay them back? Mm-hmm. Another thing they're saying is. Yeah. Your entire economy just collapsed because you idiots keep planting just fucking potatoes. Why did you replant potatoes? Plant something else. What are you doing? Which, again, is uh, pretty myopic. Stupid. Stupid as shit, right? Because, again, they have seed potatoes, right? They don't they don't have the infrastructure maybe to grow other things. They are growing other things, by the way. That's how they're making most of their money. The thing they seem to fail to recognize is. The landlords maybe are growing wheat. None of that yeah. wheat is staying in Ireland to be fed no. to the people. No, right? They're, anytime that they would be like, well, "Why didn't you grow something else?" They did, and then the and then the British took it. Well, they would sell it to the British, right? The landlords yeah. would sell it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's right? what I so, mean. There was nothing. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like an idiotic oh. thing, right? It's like, why aren't you guys just? Eat, why are you just eating potatoes? And the Irish poor are like, "What the fuck else is there?" Right? Like, there's nothing else here for us to eat. So. The public works projects somehow are even worse than the workhouses. So by by early 1847, over 20% of some of the most hard hit counties like County Clare, 20% of their population is supported by public works projects. And so the West and South of Ireland really bears the brunt of the 
um, famine and they, they have the biggest need. But basically, like during this time, about 10 percent of the public population of Ireland is on the public pay work uh, system. And most of those works, like we said last time, they involve the creation of stone roads with no destination at all. So there's just like thousands of starving people breaking rocks, moving rocks down the road, placing them down, getting paid for the amount of rocks they broke and laid that day. It's so futile. And again, (laughs) again, it's futile and it's futile. (laughs) Right. Yes, it's exactly both Fudel and Futel. And yes. the problem, like thing that's going, the things that are really going wrong, right? We just said there's no food to be purchased in Ireland at the time. Like there's no food, right? Mm-hmm. There's not like there's, it's not like there's anything to buy. And because there's a lack of food in Ireland, there's no, like the payment that these people are being given, it's not enough food to feed even a single person, let alone like feed a family. Right. So being on the public works project, it's just basically like delaying your starvation. Right. And it's not even organized. It's not even organizing a way to start building effective infrastructure. No, it's just they can't even. Yeah, they can't even put enough time and effort from sort of the central like the central landowners or the central government to be able to affect that. You know, it's no. like. It, the, again, the plan is not to fix Ireland. The plan no. is to right. punish the Irish until right. they fix themselves. Right. Which is what's so incredibly yes. insane is that they didn't. They also probably didn't have the means to effectively fix any of these problems. No, there's nothing. There's nothing. No. There's no way they could no. have done it. So of course not. the winner of 46 to 47 is particularly bad in terms of weather for Ireland as well. So there's just like blizzard after blizzard after blizzard. And so what does this do for the workhouses or for the, the, I mean, anyone in the workhouses or doing road relief? Um, You don't get paid if you don't lay useless stones on dead roads. So there is not, they're not getting paid for their daily work and there's no food available anyways. So most of them, what they start doing is they start pawning off their belongings including clothing, furniture, bedding, like whatever, right? right? Yeah. So again, like if your government plan is we're not going to give the people fish, we're going to teach them to fish, does not work so well in a desert. No. <laughs> there have to be fish no. available. Right. You know? Right. right. Um, so by January 1847, it becomes clear that these public works projects, they're not working. They're not, they're not working at all. The government has paid about five million pounds for roads that don't go anywhere. Then the Whig government is like, we could be spending this in more effective ways. And so they're not they're not helping anybody. They're not doing anything. And so by June of 47, all public works projects are halted officially. Um, It's considered a tremendous failure, even for the Whigs. They're like this. This has not been working at all. But surprisingly for the Whigs, they do have one successful public relief method. They get it from the Quakers and the British Relief Association. And it is basically what becomes known as the Temporary Soup Kitchen Act of February 1847. Mm. Notice how they put temporary in the name. 
such a benign group of such a benign group. The idea with this law, basically, they're like, okay, look, people are starving, right? What's the cheapest food we can make? It's got to be soup. Dirt. It's between soup and dirt. They can't eat dirt. Right. Stones? Nope, can't eat stones. Stones hasn't worked out so well for us. We're going to go with soup. Mm -hmm. They basically decided we're going to give people free soup in these soup kitchens. And the rich can pay to come watch the poor eat the soup. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, so it's it's almost like a zoo of loathing. It's crazy, right? right? Like it's kind of nuts. Um, yeah. And what was the like? What was the motivation for this? So you could either feel good about yourself as a British citizen because you're quote unquote helping them by feeding them, or you could just loathe them more because they're so poor and it's just such abject poverty that you've been conditioned to see as weakness. You know, that's that's the thing that's so disgusting about it. It's so voyeuristic. Well, so, yeah, so the other thing, like, the payment thing. I mean, I'm I'm really surprised they just didn't have them fight. They didn't just pay to have them fight at this point, like a Hunger Games. Well, so the other thing that happens is, like, they start using these as a way to, like, they use it as a way, basically, to provide food mm-hmm. and also to... Propaganda to teach the Catholics about Protestantism. Oh, nice. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. So this is what gives rise to the term superism. Right. (laughs) Um, Where these like Protestant Bible groups create. Create systems where it's like you can convert over. If you like, if you want the soup, you got to convert. That's so fucked. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucked. Right. It's just so I mean, it's just so messed up. That's so messed up. And so like the idea of like watching people eat or whatever, Uh like it did. It wasn't always for pay. Right. But it's pretty still pretty fucked. Right. It's well, it's just it's it is. It's like a form of propaganda, no matter how you no matter if you put a religious element into into it for like conversion. Anyways, you're basically you're basically making them into a spectacle, right? Yeah. You've created this situation. You're part of the, uh, the group of people that have created this situation, but you're not going to like you're going to just look at it. You're not going to actually actively help it. Yeah. And so the soup was actually from a chef called Burgoyne um, or Soyer as well. Right. So there's it's from an idea that came from. Basically, what was known as like these specific soup kitchens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that had that had existed before. So, the soyer soup contained the following. You ready? Yes. Okay, a quarter of a joint of leg of beef, two ounces of dripping fat, two onions and other vegetables, half a pound of flour, half a pound of pearl barley, three ounces of salt with half an ounce of brown sugar, fuel to like heat it. Two gallons of water. So the total cost for a thing of soup was six pence. And that's to feed, uh, clearly to feed everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So 
the idea was this guy, uh, Burgoyne, uh, was the one that was in charge of actually setting up these soup kitchens. So it's it's a it's a really interesting like a it's a, a, an example of good government policy happening. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the few good government policies now. By. The summer of 1847, three million people are fed by the soup kitchens for a total cost of only one point seven five million pounds. Hmm. So it's like the most successful thing they've tried, right? The workhouses or the work, the working system, the work jobs, or the jobs, right? the outdoor relief jobs haven't worked, right? They're yeah. five million pounds. It's not feeding the people. They can't buy food. It's just leading to more suffering, right? But the soup kitchen thing does work. Now, like with any good piece of charity, nothing is ever really given for free. Right. So the not. day the day of the first soup kitchen when it's opened, they invite like all of the aristocracy from around Ireland and the UK and whatever to come watch the poor people eat the soup. And even people at the time, like like reporters are like, this seems kind of seems kind of fucked up, guys. Seems kind of messed up. I don't, think we should be, I don't think we should be watching him eat the soup like Jesus Christ. Right. Like it's it's bad. Well, it's propaganda, right? right? I mean, it's absolute propaganda. propaganda. So you can um, feel good about yourself for helping without actually helping. And you can kind of loathe the thing you're looking at. Absolutely. And they also so they also do. If you want to come get soup and be fed, you need to convert to to Protestantism from Catholicism. And so it, it actually creates like a slang or not really a slang, I guess, more like a curse almost like, oh, you're taking the soup or you're working for the soup or whatever is like <laughs> you're giving up your faith for for this help. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. so insidious. It's absolutely crazy, right? So that's yeah. that's really what's happening here, right? It's yeah. it's never... It's never, it's never charitable. just help. Right. No, it's never just help. No. So the soup act is is useful. It's helpful. It's helping things. It's really helping people. But it has a tremendous amount of opposition to it. So, number one, the Whigs believe the Irish should pay for their own poor. And so the poor laws that are already on the books, those should be the only method of relief for poverty right it's the only way to make sure that the irish or the local people are the ones paying for the poor in their region and they're responsible for their own economic activity mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. on top of this the cost to the taxpayers of other parts of the uk they thought had to be limited because they thought the irish they brought this on themselves Right. This is a quote, a quote from Trevelyan, right? So the owners and holders of land in these districts had permitted or encouraged the growth of the excessive population, which depended upon the precarious potato. And they alone had it in their power to restore society to a safe and healthy state. End quote. If you notice that thing about excessive population, right? Mm-hmm. That's a thing that they're like, they're obsessed with. This idea that like the Irish, there's too many Irish. They have too many people for the land to handle. Right, this is a big moralist argument that, you know, again, the Irish weren't so damn horny. None of this would have happened in the first place, right? Why well, can't just they animals, just... animals, right? They're why just can't animals. They, yeah, what why, like, look, when you're going to have a kid, right? So a man loves a woman, you close your eyes, you think of the queen. 
you know what I mean? That's it. You can't enjoy it. No one should be enjoying it. All right. Well, and you most certainly, you know, during that time, like birth control and, and Catholicism wasn't, wasn't that great for anyone. Right. Or really for Protestant, but no, it's just the thing that's so amazing again, is it's just uh, standard playbook still, right? This is how you, this is how you isolate a group of people and make them into something less than yourself. Cause they were probably like, the other thing is that they were playing, playing them against the UK poor. Like, well, we have our own poor people to take care of here. Why should we be spending money to take care of the Irish? Oh, it's, it is a hundred percent like freckled welfare Queens. Yes. Right. Like that's, that's the argument here, right? Yes. Another argument they use that we hear all the time. Why don't you move out of tornado alley? Right. The government is like, if things are so bad in Ireland, why don't you leave why don't you stop uh replanting potatoes every season after the blight right the conditions are in place that make it impossible to do anything else right 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 well by by saying that too you know by putting this all back on ireland and the irish people it it excuses them from any kind of culpability right absolutely it's 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 doing multiple things it's not just you know ignorance it's like the Whigs have to start to separate themselves or else it becomes their more, you know, history will show, but it became their problem. Right. And yeah. so they're basically oh. saying, no, this isn't our, this is. Oh, yeah. This oh, isn't oh, us. Oh, it's the Irish. It's the Irish. So besides like these moral arguments, these kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, I guess more social anti, you know, these moralist arguments, mm-hmm. there were also like legal challenges to the idea of what was called outdoor relief for the Irish. Right. So the poor laws explicitly said only indoor relief can be provided. Yeah. Yeah. So any relief given to people who aren't living in the workhouse system, any people who own land or could otherwise work, Mm -hmm. that was explicitly illegal by the poor laws. Mm. And so they argued the soup act. It's too close to outdoor relief. There's no uh, there's no way to be sure that these people are telling the truth that they actually need the soup, right? These, this could just be a guy coming off, you know, walking around with a, you could just hide his gold chain and, uh, you know, be like, I need the soup. And then you give him soup and then he goes out and buys a cell phone. That's crazy, <laughs> right? We can't give him soup. There's no way with his, with, yeah, this is just, what the hell are you talking about, right? Oh, God. So... There's like this crazy infighting amongst the Whig government, right, about mm-hmm. whether or not they should be feeding the poor this like flowery single cut of beef soup, you know? Yeah. And so but they should the be doing time, the bare minimum that could possibly alleviate some of this condition. Absolutely. Yeah. So the so they think they're basically they're like, listen, we're going to do the soup thing for a little bit, but it's just to get over the winter. Yeah. Right. We're not happy about it, but it's just to help the people out until they can get back to the fall of 80 of 47. Yes. When the next potato harvest comes in and it should be fine and everything will go back to normal. Yes. Because if we've learned, it's really good just to ignore any of the root cause problems. It should just solve itself. And uh, pro tip for listeners, things don't get better. They're about to get way worse. And that's where we'll pick up after the break. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to. 
but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all? And you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. And we're back, Jake. Okay. So the fall of 1847 Mm -hmm. brought about the third potato harvest of the famine years. And there was no blight. There's no blight anymore. Things are looking up. Here's the problem. So many people have been starving to death, sick, working on aimless roads to nowhere. There's just not, there hasn't been enough planting of seed potatoes or of other crops. They don't have the, they don't have labor. Again, infrastructure, right? There's no labor. There's no labor. Your labor's sick or dead or, you know, indigent or moved, right? Yeah. Left. So there's no, like, you know, it's almost like, so you got this big, you got a class of people who are mostly farmers, right? Yep. And the government says, well, we don't want to help this class of people anymore. And then when they all leave or like don't get help or whatever, mm-hmm. and then suddenly like all your crops are no longer being gathered. It's like, oh, holy crap. Like what happened here? Right. It's right. like, it's like, you know, exactly what happened with Brexit. <laughs> but anyway, well, but that's, but it's sort of like your extraction, right? Your extraction extractive economy. economy. This is, is an extractive economy. Your, yes. your, your race to the bottom extraction economy. You've just hit it. Like you've just, it's now beginning to affect you. Yes. Right. So, just, you've taken out everything. So besides like, okay, so yeah, great. There's no more potato blight. Mm-hmm. Landlords also now they're expecting back payment of rent, right? Because, mm-hmm. hey, potatoes are fine now. You don't need any help anymore. Yeah. Right. Like things are back to normal. Get with it. Right. The economy's open again, stupid. <laughs> you know, so any <sighs> potatoes then that were planted or any crops mm-hmm. that were planted were going towards payment of relief provided for the blight. Um, years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Irish landlords now are selling that grain outside of Ireland. And the poor are just too destitute, hungry, sick, ill to do anything to help feed themselves. Right. So the UK government, though, doesn't look at this again as like, this is bad government management. You can't end a crisis just when things start getting back to normal, you have to handle the crisis until the after effects are handled effectively. Mm-hmm. They don't look at it as a failure of government. They think of this as this is the fault of the greedy landlords mm-hmm. and the lazy Irish. Yep. And so in October of 1847, the UK government basically codified these views with the Irish Poor Law Relief Extension Act. 
Now, listen, anytime anything is named like that, like, you know, the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, <laughs> it's the opposite. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. You don't you don't name something like definitely not a murder basement if it's not a murder basement. <laughs> so nothing to see here. Murder basement. Yeah. Despite its name, it gave no relief to the Irish and in fact made things significantly worse. The crux of the issue, right, is this idea that the Irish should pay for their own poor. So in this law, they set it up so that the poor rate, that the monies that were taxed to pay for the government relief of Ireland would be levied now directly onto the landlords themselves and the rate would be increased. So this is what Trevelyan said. So he said, quote, the principle of the poor law is that rate after rate should be levied for the purpose of preserving life until the landlord and the farmer either enable the people to support themselves by honest industry or dispose of their estates to those who can perform this indispensable duty, end quote. So again, directly saying in a letter, the idea here is to punish the bad capitalists who can't cut it to mm -hmm. give their shit away to people who can't. Right. Yeah, because that's, yeah. Yeah. The one good thing the law did, it made outdoor relief available to a larger class of people. So it, 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 it gave help to people who couldn't work, orphans, mothers with children, right? Like it, it opened up some stuff to people. It also made outdoor relief available if the workhouse was too full, was too filled with illness, right? Because again, people just dying in the workhouse um, or like some other reason that the workhouse system was not workable at the time. But most infamously, it's known for codifying what became known as the Gregory Clause. The clause was put forward by Sir William Gregory, a member of parliament from Dublin. Now, it tried to solve two problems. First, how do we provide relief in a way that ensures only those who actually need it get the help? And two, how do we push Ireland back into a situation where that excess population is no longer a thing. How do we get to a point where the Irish land is able to actually support the Irish people? Uh -huh. So two, like, again, super villain level evil things that we still do to this day in most Western governments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. this happens all the time. Yep. yep. Right. Yep. So the Gregory cause the Gregory Clause attempts to solve these issues in pretty terrible ways. So first, anyone asking for relief, again, outdoor relief or indoor relief, who has more than a quarter acre of land, forfeits that land to the landlord or government. Any fee incurred by the government then to feed tenant farmers and the destitute mm -hmm. would be collected by the poor law unions directly from that landlord. Mm -hmm. If that person mm -hmm. still technically lives on the landlord's estate. Right. So you're poor. You can't you can't feed yourself, or your family. You go there and say, listen, I live on, you know, uh, I live on, um, I this don't know, a plot of land or this this quarter acre yeah. of a plot of land. They take it and then they're going to charge that landlord. Exactly. But the yep. landlord in turn is going to squeeze the people that are they're still there. Well, here's the thing. The government, um, the landlords are at their breaking point now. Yes, they have. They have no. They haven't made any money for like three years, mm -hmm. and in fact, they're shelling out tremendous amounts of money to help pay, right, for the poor. So the government has to start sending in like soldiers and forcing compliance. And so the landlords figure, okay, the only way to get around this then, 
the pe- if the people no longer live on my land, then I don't have to pay for their relief. Right? They'll just be homeless. And that's the government's problem, not my problem. <sighs> so the landlords start evicting people en masse. So basically, like people go to the people go to the workhouse or these these outdoor relief places to get mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. They come back to their farms burnt to the ground by the landlords or like the landlords send in goons in the night to like force you out of your home. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So good government policy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> really good government yeah. policy. Well, effective. The second, right. I mean, that's the was, thing is it's like that's that's this is what human nature does when it's left unchecked with a yes. problem. Yes. So the second method was provide help in the way of incentivizing Irish immigration to other places. All right. Yeah. So this you is just, you just, uh, you know, bust them to Martha's Vineyard. So this was <laughs> this was. Oh, oh I'm this sorry. was this was a quote from Oliver Burke and the Dublin University magazine in August of 1876 mm-hmm. about the Gregory Clause and basically how like, man, that guy thought he was helping, but he's made it way worse. The quote. Mr. Gregory was amongst those who devoted their thoughts to these twofold difficulties. As to the latter, meaning Irish overpopulation, mm-hmm. he proposed to the House that any tenant rated at a net value not exceeding five pounds should be assisted to immigrate by the guardians of the union, the landlord to forego any claim for rent and to provide such fair and reasonable sum as might be necessary for the immigration of such occupier. The guardians being empowered to pay for the immigration of his family, any sum not exceeding half what the landlord should give, the same to be levied off the rates. So basically they said, well, listen, if you don't want to pay the rate anymore, you can just pay them to move. Yeah. And then we'll and that's fine. You pay them to move and then you don't you don't owe any more for the relief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course now, you have nowhere to go. Well, here's the thing, right? <laughs> this method creates further problems. Yeah. So first yeah. off. Like, we're talking about the Irish famine as if this famine did not affect the rest of Europe. The rest of Europe was getting kicked to the nads, too. Right. right? Like, there wasn't a lot of food anywhere. And right. so part of, like, the geopolitical thing that's happening here is that countries like America that have plenty of grain to ship around, they are basically selling to the highest bidder. Yeah? Yes. And so... The British government is not willing to pay any more for to feed the Irish. Right. They don't they don't want to help. Them. No. So they're like, oh, it's kind of productive for them. Exactly. Yeah. So there's just no, um, you know, there's no there's no reason to do it. Right. So they're just like, whatever, we'll just send them off to these other places and not worry about it anymore. Yeah. Yes. Now, this creates, again, further tensions, though. Right. So and then that's another thing here we didn't mention at the time of like 1847, the British uh, economy almost collapses. Because again, there's just so much of this uh, going around and the people, of course, in power, who do they blame? The lazy Irish who are causing all this burden on their economy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that kind of further inflames the people against the like the, the British people against the Irish. Right? right. Yeah. So, OK, they're now sending the Irish to like Liverpool you know, these these like places in the UK to then hopefully continue their journey to the Americas or other European port cities 
The problem is that a lot of the times these landlords are just tricking them into going to Liverpool and then not helping them get any further. Well, yeah, I would yeah. assume that would be standard at this point. Or, or there's people in those other ports who are like, oh, if you give me the money they gave you, yeah, I'll we can get give you, you food and help yeah. and we'll get you there, right? And then they never exactly. see them again. So exactly. this law, the Irish Poor Law Extension Act, and the Gregory Clause basically create the conditions from which the rest of Irish history began and, in my opinion, should be viewed. At this point, the people who are subsisting off of government relief were essentially just prolonging starvation and death. And now, with the Irish unable to provide the relief for their own people, the British government completely refuses to step in any further. And this leads to further acts of rebellion, with Irish poor rising up in pockets against the gentry and the landlords. Obviously, the group most hated are the landlords, those who are invicting uh, tenants, uh, you know, in giant groups, mm-hmm. right, or, or sending them off to the Americas. And actually, it's it's recorded that the first landlord killed in this way was Dennis Mahan of County Roscommon. Um, he owned a 9,000-acre plot that had 28 villages on it called Stokes Town or Strokestown. He sent his unwanted tenants to Quebec and had, at the time of his death, uh, sent over 800 tenants from the estate. The 3,000 remaining tenants, he was looking to evict all of them. Right? He, he had right. evicted them. Right. That included 84 widows, children, orphans, right? Everything. Yeah. 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 And so he's ambushed on the road one night and shot. And supposedly the people celebrated his death by lighting bonfires throughout his estate. And I get it. <laughs> I fucking get it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so, man. Because uh, the, the, the thing that this example, I think, illustrates to me again is just the size, like 28 villages. You know, or he's like, this wasn't just a couple, you know, 50 people or 60 people. This was no. like, this landlord almost was a monarch unto himself to these people in some ways. You know, he represented their... He, he represented them in their future. Yeah. It's like if, um, I mean, I, I, yeah, there's just no, like there's no, the mayor of your town evicted you. Yeah. There's no, exactly. There's no comparison right. to it in the modern day. No, but it, it would be as like, it, it's that closely tied. And it's like, you know, it, he, over 800 people had to evacuate. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a massive amount. And then the people that were left, you know, that were too weak or too old or too young to do that were just evicted. Like, I, I don't, I'm surprised this guy didn't get it sooner. It's crazy. So, um, so the poor are rising up now. And honestly, the landlords are kind of like, yeah, let's get them. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's bad. Shit's bad. Let's get them. You know, let's, let's do it. And so rebellion plans start springing up around the country. Now, Nothing ever really comes from it, right? The the most successful group are the Young Irish, or the mm-hmm. Young Ireland Party. But they really don't have their day until they become the Irish Confederation, who are arguing against the repeal, or arguing for the repeal of the Acts of Union and the creation of an Irish free state, which, um, yeah, pretty good fucking idea, in my opinion. Yeah. Hard not to, hard not to listen to or read this stuff and be like, they should have stayed with the UK. They clearly cared about them so much. But again, like these rumors of rebellion start coming up and 
it just turns British sentiment against the Irish even further. And so the Times of London quotes, in no other country have men talked treason until they are hoarse and then gone about begging sympathy from their oppressors. And in none have they repeated more humble and piteous requests for help to those whom they have previously repaid with monstrous ingratitude, end quote. Yeah, this is, you know, basically the, the whole fuse is lit on all of this stuff. Yeah, stuff's about to go down. Yeah. So yeah. tensions are increasing. It's like powder keg. Things are going crazy. The British don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle this problem. And so they decide, OK, here's what we're going to do. Step one. We're going to let the people starve. And step two, we're going to send in more troops and we're going to rescind the right of habeas corpus. Until 1849. So they're going to occupy. There's actually a quote from a, um, there's a quote from, I think like a, I think he's a reverend who basically says, if only the government sent bread instead of guns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. So horrifically, the crop of 48 sees the complete failure of the potato crop again due to blight. And this time the government just literally throws up their hands. Like we're not helping anymore. You know, mm -hmm. and part of the reason is because the British government, like idiots, but again, not too unlike a lot of companies today with the covid pandemic, mm -hmm. they bet that grain prices would forever stay at market highs because the market never corrects itself due to geopolitical situations. And so their economy was getting just was really starting to get hit pretty badly. And so Russell says in a letter, quote, we have subscribed worked, visited, clothed for the Irish, millions of money, years of debate, etc., etc., etc. The only return is rebellion and calumny. Let us not grant, lend, clothe, etc. anymore and see what they will do. It's bad. Dude, it's rough. That's just not. Yeah. Yeah. Not. I mean, what they'll do is, again, it's just, it is just a powder cake. You're just... You're seeing that you're seeing the outlines of of what would, mm -hmm. what's going to affect, you know, still have a still have an effect on both of the countries today. And so it, at this point now, you basically have a regular like it's just a it's just a breaking down further of the landlords and the and the, the poor, you know, so the land. So any landlords who had stayed their hand for that first winter, mm -hmm. right? Cause, cause not every landlord evicted their people or, you know, sent them to other countries without a hope for any kind of help or anything. Um, a lot of them tried to, to stay as long as they could. Again, the landlords are not good. They're not heroes in this story by any stretch of the imagination. But at this point, they're starting to get, they're starting to get some of their own medicine. Yeah. And they're stuck you know? there, right? They can't, they can't really exactly. just abandon ship. Um, some of them probably did, like you were saying, but yeah, they're, they're rooted there. And so they now turn to another wave of mass evictions or mass immigration to other countries. You know, they have not, they have nothing else they can really do to them. Paying for them to go to other locations is the, is the, charitable almost solution you know yeah now we talk about this like the problems ended when they got on the ship it didn't the ships were horrible yeah, yeah. there was rampant disease starvation suffering 
a lot of cities had to quarantine boats from Ireland for weeks before allowing them on land, just leading to like 90% casualty rates, right? It's, it's just horrific what happens. And then the Irish come to these countries and find out, oh shit, they don't like us as much as the British didn't like us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, we, we think today of the Irish as being like, almost like in your head, if you think of like, you know, what a white person looks like, you kind of think of like a pale skinned person, right. Mm -hmm. Or you think of, I think like a lot of people think like Irish Americans or whatever. Right. when we think of what a white American is, that wasn't the case then. Right. They, the Irish were a minority group who came here and we did not like them just as much as the British didn't like them. Right. Well, they were, they again were, you know, they didn't have, they didn't speak the language. They didn't know the customs necessarily. Yes. They didn't, they were outsiders, continuous outsiders without, you know, and you're going to have the same sort of xenophobic reaction the majority of the time when you have, when that happens. It's just it. This this becomes the recurring kind of theme here, mm-hmm. you know. So the famine continues in eight, until eighteen fifty, but the stage for what comes next is already set. The government now has stopped trying to help the people. They are now trying to grind the Irish population into the ground with punishments. Mm-hmm. Right, first punishing them for the inability to feed their own people, then punishing them for their rebelliousness after the government actively tries to harm them. And so as more and more landlords no longer are able to handle the debt burden for this relief, more evictions, more immigration, more deaths happen. The crops of 1849 fail, Mm -hmm. and this creates what's known as the Encumbered Estates Act. This basically lets any debt-laden land can be auctioned off to pay creditors back for debts incurred during the famine. So, again, even the landlords now are getting all their stuff taken. Yes. Again, it's a further consolidation of wealth, right? It's all going back up to the UK. So by 1850, the agricultural conditions return to normal. The potato crop is back to normal. There's enough potatoes and the population is decreased like crazy. But the Irish would not forget the horrors of the famine would not forget the evils of the government who had made things worse, basically, at every turn. Mm -hmm. And particularly in America, anti-British sentiment and the call for a free Ireland is growing every single year. Yeah. The call is helped by newfound members of the Young Islanders and Irish Confederation. So uh, this quote from John Mitchell says, quote, the English indeed call that famine a dispensation of providence and ascribe it entirely to the blight of the potatoes. But potatoes failed in like manner all over Europe, yet there was no famine save in Ireland. The British account of the matter, then, is first a fraud, second a blasphemy. The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. All told, the Irish famine kills almost a million people, with another two million leaving Ireland. It is... I I, I mean, I don't think... You can look at it as anything else than a mass. It begins as bad management. It ends as a genocide. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't, I don't think you can mince words about it. Like no, they, I, no, no, you can't. It's terrible. It's horrible. It is. And I think 
the thing that again you you end on this or you know again it doesn't really end but it it you get this toll but you also are setting the stage for rebellion for the next 100 plus years right there won't yeah. be there won't be any kind of um stable relation ongoing or civil discourse for a very long period of time but no, how how yeah. can you have discourse with like the thing is that after like it, things look bad at first the fact that like Trevelyan and like Russell and any of these wigs weren't like yo when I before I die let's burn all my letters so that nobody knows what a tremendous piece of shit I am well, but like, that's that's the beautiful thing about these people is they don't think that they're wrong. They don't think of no. themselves as pieces of shit, right? They are no. they're just like they would say the same thing again, given the exact same circumstance. And that's that's the thing I think that, you know, that I mean, even uh, Margaret Thatcher, when she was in office as the prime minister, when they were having the hunger strikes, the Irish hunger strikes, basically mm-hmm. her stance was let them starve. Let them starve. If that's what they're going to do, let them starve. Right? So it's it's the same sort of attitude that prevailed even then. You know, it's like it's it's, it's a moral inferiority and that that is the only way to solve that is, is, is basically to let them bring themselves to ruin instead of mm-hmm. acknowledging the huge role and the, and what they did to, to this group of people, right? Because then they would have to have some, there would have to be a level of accountability that I don't see uh, monarchies or ruling class governments are, are United States included, wanting to be able to open their eyes to because it's, it's a pretty big reckoning, right? I mean, it's not like what the Irish, you know, went through is, is dissimilar to... Uh, Native Americans, African Americans. Well, you know what, Trevelyan? A lot of, a lot of, a lot of groups got on that end of it. You know what Trevelyan did after the Irish famine? He he went to work for a lobbyist. He got sent to rule the economy of India. Of course he. Well, that's perfect. That's perfect for him, right? So I mean, that's that's spot on the nose, right? He 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 fails upwards. It's. Crazy! It's crazy! I know, but the the one thing, well, maybe not the one thing, but one of the big things that, like, I take away from this and doing the research and going and looking, you know, at Irish, kind of Irish uh, culture and art after after the famine is, again, the resiliency and the fact that... Oh, my God. ...that the the rebellion is part of, you know, the rebellion becomes part of, you know, almost like a... A cultural touchstone in a lot of ways and the 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 point of being the point of saying that they are still here after all of this after everything that happened they're you know the irish are still you know they're still here and they're still fighting for you know ireland united it to me it's that's like the one or one of the main takeaways from something like that and rebuilding a culture rebuilding a language heritage through all of through you know education through song through stories it's it's something that it that Trevelyan was not able to stamp out it honestly it's 
yeah, it just makes you so, um, I'm not even Irish and I am proud of the Irish. Do you know what I mean? Through this yeah. story. Like it's, yeah. it's like such a victory. Is it a victory? It's it, it, well, I think it, I think it is. It's again, it's sort of, I keep using the phrase cold comfort, but it is such a, 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 a thorn in the side of, yeah. Of, um, of sort of this, this way of thinking that, you know, that it enabled Trevelyan and it enabled the Whigs to uh, dehumanize these people. Right. It's such a, yeah. it's such a like rebuttal, almost like a, uh, just again, it's hope, you know, and I think that that's what yeah. they couldn't kill in a lot of ways. And I'll tell you, the first thing I did after finishing the research for this this oh. series was buy like every book I could on the Irish Rebellion, which is fascinating. So, I mean, the Irish Rebellion is like pretty fascinating yeah, too. Pretty crazy, dear listeners. This was a very very long series with a lot of sources, with a lot of research. I've been researching like. I probably brought this idea for this series to you, Marie, like a year ago. Yes. Maybe. And like I had already read a book and was like, we should do this. I think it'd be really cool. If you like the series, you know, give us a good review. Like us on Facebook. Like Follow the page on YouTube. You know, tell your friends, listen to the show. And please. Yeah, let's fucking Please learn from history. Help us all learn from history. Help us all learn from history. Just that little bit, right? Just that, just that tiny little bit. It's going to help. Please. All right. We're also going back to a thing we used to do where the research for full episodes is getting pretty intense. So every other week we're going to do like an interview or like a fun episode or whatever. So hope you enjoy that. And uh, (laughs) as always, reach out to us anytime. We love you listeners. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.